Hello, Global Hemophilia Report listeners. My name is Patrick James Lynch. I'm the executive producer and sometimes host of this podcast. The following is part one of a two-part episode on hemophilia B. We've got a lot to cover. And rather than cut some very useful information and engaging guests, we're going to divide this episode into two parts. So without further ado, let's listen in to part one. Welcome to the Global Haemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. Produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media, and supported through advertisements by Sanofi. I'm Lawrence Willard, your resident host, and I live with severe haemophilia myself. Haemophilia, perhaps more than any other monogenic disease of childhood, has been mythologized in popular culture. Public awareness of the condition is rooted predominantly in 18th and 19th century history of European monarchs, starting early in high school, where young people are first exposed to its moniker, the royal disease, because Queen Victoria's descendants were affected. But there's more to the story than meets the eye. It's inconceivable to think that a spontaneous single gene mutation originating at the conception of Victoria late in the summer of 1818 could shape major events in global politics and international relations that are reflected in contemporary imperialist conflicts to this very day. And the gene in question is factor IX deficiency, otherwise known as haemophilia B, the focus of this episode. With multiple documentaries over the years, a Netflix drama, exhibitions at globally renowned museums, and even a 70s Euro disco hit that has become ubiquitous on TikTok, the collateral effects of this period in history means that it deserves our attention, and Factor 9 is at the heart of it. Before you start thinking that I have royal privileges, for the record, I don't have any connection to the royal family line, not least because I'm a proud member of the Factor 8 gang. More pertinent, is that this episode follows the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, where we witness the outpouring of public mourning and affection across the UK and around the world, including the remarkable scenes of thousands of people in the now famous queue to go and see the Queen's coffin lying in state in the Palace of Westminster. At the same time, the transition to King Charles III has fueled Republican and anti-colonial sentiment across the land and Commonwealth, arguing that the institution of monarchy serves little purpose other than to perpetuate an outdated class system based on white hereditary privilege at a time when Britain is the most unequal society it has been in the Queen's 70-year reign, the longest of any British monarch. Regardless of one's stance, the recent events are an example of the royal family's cultural capital and significance, and gives us clues as to why haemophilia running through the royal genes once upon a time was such a big deal. So, for any history buffs amongst the scientific research or patient advocacy network, stay tuned. This episode should be right up your street. Equally, Anyone with a thirst for knowledge and seeking to improve the lives of people living with haemophilia B, you should also stick with us. Oh, and by the way, you'll be hearing the terms haemophilia B and factor IX being used interchangeably. The same goes for haemophilia A and factor A, where there's no mention of a letter or number or where it's pluralised. Consider this as meaning both haemophilia A and B. 
Right, here's a quick message from our featured advertiser. We'll see you on the other side. Sanofi is breaking barriers for people with hemophilia through groundbreaking science so they can live beyond the limitations of their condition. Learn more about Sanofi's commitment at sanofihemophilia.com. Before we dive into the clinical research and modern-day considerations for the management of Haemophilia B, let's turn the clock back over a century and embark on a crucial, and with the late Queen's passing, poignantly timely, journey through European monarchy and its historical relevance to Factor IX. For centuries, monarchy had ruled absolute across Europe. Alliances were established and sustained through royal marriages, either with higher-ranked dynastic houses or by joining two powerful houses together. Queen Victoria of England and Empress of the Indies, who reigned between 1837 to 1901, would go on to be called the Mother of Europe due to the strategic marriages she arranged for her nine children. Amongst her descendants were 21 reigning monarchs and 19 consorts, or the spouses, of serving monarchs. The sovereign was the apex of society, the pinnacle of a social hierarchy that seemed to be unshakable. Royal households were interrelated through marriage, furthering the concept of their position as a quote-unquote superior breed. Moreover, Maintaining an appearance as strong and healthy was important to preserve the conception that royalty had been chosen from special regal lineage and given very distinct abilities to guide the people of their respected nations. Yet, the formidable combination of a silent Haemophilia B carrier and the aforementioned tradition of purposeful political marriages and large royal families contributed to one of the most prominent transmissions of a genetic condition in human medical history. Quite possibly the most famous, yet terribly tragic case, in more ways than one, is that of the Tsarevich Alexei and the last ruling Romanov family of Russia. Alexandra Fyodorovna, of German origin and formerly Princess Alex of Hesse, was Queen Victoria's granddaughter and became Tsarina, Empress of Russia, when she married Tsar Nicholas II of the Romanov imperial family line in November 1894. The first duty of the Tsarina was to provide the dynasty with a male heir who was in good health. Blessed with four daughters in quick succession, the couple waited anxiously for the birth of a son. At last, on July 30th, 1904, the long-awaited Savic arrived, and the future lineage to the throne was secured, for now at least. A thunderous 301-gun salute announced to the people of St. Petersburg that a male heir had finally been born. Alexei was the fairy tale prince with platinum locks and big blue-grey eyes. Alexandra was inseparable from him. All seemed well with the little Savage, but in the September, Alexandra was horrified when she noticed her baby son was bleeding from the umbilicus. Alex and I are very disturbed at the constant bleeding in little Alexei, Nicholas confided to his diary. It continued at intervals from his navel until evening. Anna Vera Bova, Alexandra's closest confidant, later wrote, She hardly knew a day's happiness after she knew her boy's fate. Ominous rumours of an illness were roaming the palace. Upon finding out about Alexei's bleeding problem, the Tsarina is recorded as saying, 
If only you knew how fervently I've prayed for God to protect my son from our inherited curse. The Russian people regarded any imperfection as a divine judgment for some sin. The Tsar, as head of both the state and church, had to be free of any physical defect. And in fact, he was perceived so close to God that at Russian coronations, the Tsar would crown himself as no one else was worthy. Consequently, the affliction of Haemophilia B on the future Tsar and Supreme Priest was concealed from all except the immediate family. Alexei was assigned his own full-time surgeon, Dr. Derevenko, who had an assistant named Nagorny to watch over him in the event of a bleeding episode. According to Pierre Gilliard, who was appointed as Alexei's tutor in 1913, Dr. Derevenko had told him that the heir was Pray to haemophilia and that the slightest wound might cause the boy's death. As such, All that could be done was to watch over him closely day and night, especially in his early years, and by extreme vigilance, try to prevent accidents. Gilliard writes that he felt a terrible burden of responsibility, and even with all the precautions, it was impossible always to prevent accidents. There were three in the course of the first month. He further documents attention with Dr. Derevenko, arguing that the external power, i.e. the presence of the doctor and his assistant, which intervened whenever danger threatened, seemed to hinder the boy's development of self-determination and stifle his own sense of risk perception and confidence. Despite their fear of a fatal event, Alexandra and Nicholas could see that the existing system was having a detrimental effect on their son. Gilliard suggests that Alexei was always suffering from the incessant supervision to which he was being subjected when playing with his friends. This idea of growing up swaddled in figurative bubble wrap by overprotected caregivers may strike a chord with many people living with haemophilia today. Soon after relaxing the supervision, Without a word of warning, Gilead's worst nightmare struck. Alexei was in the schoolroom standing on a chair when he slipped and in falling, hit his right knee against the corner of some piece of furniture. The next day he couldn't walk and was bedbound. Without any viable treatment, the hemorrhage and pain were uncontrollable and the swelling rapidly spread down the leg. Alexandra watched over him and Nicholas tried to amuse and comfort the boy. Think of the tortures of that mother, Gilead wrote. An impotent witness of her son's martyrdom in those hours of mortal anguish. A mother who knew that she herself was the cause of his sufferings, that she had transmitted to him the terrible disease against which human science was powerless. I suppose haemophilia is one of the small number of conditions which have actually had an impact on history. This is Brian Amani. He's the chief executive of the Irish Haemophilia Society and former president of both the World Federation of Haemophilia and the European Haemophilia Consortium. Like Prince Alexei, Brian lives with severe factor IX deficiency. Haemophilia B was the genetic defect for which Queen Victoria was a carrier and thereby she had a son with haemophilia, but she also brought the haemophilia gene into the royal families in not just Britain, but Spain and Russia. And most famously, the Tsarevich Alexis 
had severe hemophilia B, and he was attended by the first centre director, Rasputin, who had a lot of influence on Alexandra. And in fact, you can say that that has significant impact on Russian and European history, and indeed world history, because when the Kerensky provisional government fell and power was seized by the Bolsheviks, that probably would not have happened if the Tsar of Russia had agreed to abdicate in favour of his son. And of course, the reason he couldn't abdicate was because his son had severe hemophilia. So if the Tsarevich did not have severe hemophilia, the Tsar could have abdicated, the Kerensky provisional government could have survived, the Bolshevik revolution would not have succeeded, and the entire history of the world since would have been altered. We will return to Alexei and the significance of his haemophilia in the fall of the Romanov dynasty later on in the episode, including the profound influence of the Siberian peasant turned, as Brian said tongue-in-cheek, first haemophilia clinical centre director Grigory Rasputin. For now, let's get back to basics about haemophilia B. What is it, or how is it characterised? Perhaps more importantly, What differentiates factor IX deficiency to its factor VIII counterpart? It makes sense that the natural place to start is the core of biological sciences, genetics. There's immediate commonality between haemophilia B and haemophilia A in that both genes, which determine the production of blood clotting factor IX and factor VIII proteins respectively, are located on the X chromosome. But their resemblance possibly begins and ends there. I'm Jan Astemark and I'm a professor in clinical coagulation medicine and the deputy head of the Department of Translational Medicine at the Lund University. I'm also a senior consultant and heading the Center for Thrombosis and Hemostasis at the Skåne University Hospital in Malmö, Sweden. Professor Astemark's interest in coagulation and bleeding disorders formed during his PhD in 1988 where in fact he was purifying factor IX from pooled bovine and human blood fractions. So isolating or separating factor IX away from all of the other clotting factors present in bovine and human plasma. Factor IX, as we're going to talk about, is close to my heart. To clarify, the types of gene anomalies that lead to haemophilia are different for factor VIII and IX. These differences are particularly stark for severe haemophilia. In factor VIII, most of the gene mutations that lead to severe disease involve a major reshuffling of the genetic material. However, for factor IX, most of the genetic causes of severe haemophilia B represent single tiny changes in the gene's building blocks, called nucleic acids. These tiny changes, referred to as point or missense mutations, can nonetheless significantly garble the gene's instructions for making factor IX. Well, there are clear differences between hemophilia A and B regarding the genetics. Of course, they inherited the genes located on the X chromosome, but looking at, for example, the genetic profile of patients in hemophilia A, there are large rearrangements. We have inversions is more or less half of the patients with severe hemophilia A. This is nothing we see in hemophilia B, where we have point mutation, missense mutation are seen in more than half of the patients. So it's much, so to speak, less severe uh, mutations somehow affecting the molecule, which also means that more patients with hemophilia would probably have a protein circulated. And in difference to hemophilia A, that one will not work out because there is a missense mutation or something else. But of course, there are also 
other mutation types, nonsense mutations and so on. But there are clear difference in the profile as such. To Professor Astermark's point, although the factor IX gene's messages to make factor IX protein are garbled, as described a moment ago, they are rarely silenced altogether, as they are in factor VIII. Instead, this mixed-up message can translate or put out a little factor IX into the bloodstream that may hang around in the blood, but cannot function well enough to help make blood clot. So, haemophilia A and B appear to be very similar bleeding disorders, and the genes for factor A and factor IX lie very close to one another on the X chromosome, leading to their being inherited in the same way. But as we have learned so far, the nature of the changes or alterations in the two genes that lead to the two haemophilia disorders can be quite different. Let's now hear a bit more about genetic changes that are relatively or completely unique to factor IX and how one of these has been exploited for use in gene therapy programs under investigation for use in haemophilia B. The factor IX Padua variant was discovered in the idyllic northern city of Padua, Italy, hence its name, and first reported in 2009 to be the cause of such high levels of factor IX that those carrying this mutation were predisposed to clotting, not bleeding. That type of mutation is called a gain-of-function mutation, unlike the loss-of-function mutations we see in haemophilia B. After its discovery, it was immediately recognised that the use of this variant in factor IX gene therapy using adeno-associated virus or AAV platform vector technology might be able to produce higher levels of factor IX per vector and thereby reduce the amount of vector required to deliver therapeutic factor IX levels. As a result, decreasing the potential for the host immune response to AAV in the liver that impacts the outcome of the gene therapy. Gene therapy for haemophilia was covered in episode 2 of the Global Haemophilia Report and will return to its prospects for use in haemophilia B towards the latter end of this episode. Back to Professor Astermark. Unique for the factor 9 gene as well seems to be some mutations or variants that are called, for example, factor 9 Padua, which is something that has been described from Italy and which is also now used for trying to express factor 9 with the higher activity in the case of gene therapy. This is something uh, we haven't seen for as far as I know for hemophilia A, that is mutations that somehow gain function in the way that factor 9 Padua has done, just because the missense mutation is introduced. Another one is the famous Hemophilia B. Leiden variant, which means that you are born with low levels of the factor IX, but when testosterone is starting to be produced in puberty, then these boys will have an increased level each year and will reach normal levels. To my knowledge, we don't see exactly the same in Hemophilia A. Speaking about the factor IX Leiden or Hemophilia B. Leiden, Joining Professor Astermark for the discussion is Dr. Amy Shapiro, a paediatric haematologist and the medical director and CEO of the Indiana Haemophilia and Thrombosis Center in Indianapolis, the United States. Dr. Shapiro is also a clinical adjunct professor at the Blood Research Institute in Wisconsin. Both Professor Astermark and Dr. Shapiro were co-advisors to this episode. The 
promoter part of the molecule or the gene is androgen sensitive. So we don't see that in factor eight because it doesn't have that same capability. So there are unique mutations also in hemophilia B that we are not seeing in hemophilia A. And then not least also coming to the inhibitor issue. The inaugural episode of the Global Hemophilia Report was dedicated to inhibitor development, covering everything from their formation, the impact of different treatment strategies, to the pioneering research taking place to fundamentally better understand inhibitors and to prevent them from occurring in the first place. Whilst the episode primarily focused on factor VIII inhibitors, as my predecessor Patrick said, Most of what is shared from the patient and caregiver experience about the personal impact inhibitors have on a family is applicable to individuals with inhibitors to factor IX as well. Thanks, Patrick. And when you finish this episode, if you haven't already, we recommend you visit globalhemophiliareport.com and follow the links to listen to episode one on inhibitors. That said, the genetic and immunological nature of inhibitor development in haemophilia B, however, is distinct and does create its own set of challenges for the individual and their provider. Dr. Shapiro. In terms of inhibitors, because as Jan stated so well, most of factor IX deficiency is a missense or spelling error that causes a deficiency state and most of those patients have antigenic detectable factor IX. Most patients with factor IX deficiency, fortunately, do not develop inhibitors. Now, there's some discussion about what the rate is anywhere in the literature from less than 5% to up to 10%. And I think largely it depends upon the population that's included and the sensitivity of the testing. Unfortunately, with factor IX deficiency with inhibitors, it's been less successful in terms of treatment with immune tolerance induction to eradicate the inhibitor as compared to factor VIII. So although factor VIII, the rate of inhibitor development is much higher, the rate of response to immune tolerance induction is much improved. One of the most striking differences between factor VIII and factor IX inhibitors lies in the clinical symptoms associated with inhibitor development. Although only a few cases of mild to severe allergic symptoms have been reported with factor VIII inhibitors, allergic reactions occurred in one quarter to one third factor IX inhibitor patients. When these allergic reactions are severe, they can cause rapid progression to life-threatening shock a term we call anaphylaxis. Since these reactions can occur early, after a few factor IX infusions, and sometimes even before the inhibitor is diagnosed, the standard of care for children living with de novo haemophilia B, meaning the first case or where there's no family history, includes early factor IX gene mutation analysis to predict and be on guard for this complication in infants. Factor IX deficiency with inhibitors is associated with a very interesting and unusual phenomena, what we call anaphylactoid reactions or allergic type reactions. Usually when you use the word anaphylaxis, you're referring to an IgE mediated disorder. And because these antibodies are plasma-based and not 
usually IgE, we call them anaphylactoid, although the symptoms are essentially the same. These can be life-threatening symptoms, which are critical, especially very young patients, because it's very early in exposure days, a median of about 11 days. So you have to be very careful in patients who either have a family history of an inhibitor or in patients where you have no genetic testing, no one else in the family is known to have hemophilia de novo mutations. You really do need genetics for clinical care of those patients when you have a de novo severe patient with factor IX deficiency. To sum up, the success of current immune tolerance induction or ITI strategies for the eradication of factor VIII inhibitors has been reported to be 70% or more. However, traditional ITI for the eradication of factor IX inhibitors has been made significantly more challenging and often prohibitive by the allergic manifestations to factor IX and the development of nephrotic syndrome, a type of acute kidney failure that may or may not be reversible during the course of treatment with high doses of factor IX a complication not experienced with ITI for factor VIII inhibitors. The causes of both complications are unknown, making mitigation strategies difficult to devise. Due to these limitations, three international retrospective observational studies capturing factor IX inhibitor ITI data have all determined the success rate to be 50% or less. True. I think that another difference we see with hemophilia A is uh, how we treat these inhibitors as well. It seems like they are more similar to what we see in non-severe hemophilia A, where we usually use immunosuppression to get rid of the inhibitors. To my experience, it seems like in many cases this is actually needed. So it's also the immune response as such seems to be different in hemophilia B than in hemophilia A. And that's also an interesting observation, I think. It's very true. It's quite different. And I think utilization of standard immune tolerance with high doses in hemophilia B with inhibitors is fraught with complications. It's a much higher antigenic load than with factor VIII. There are other associated problems, including development of nephrosis, which is not sensitive to steroids and requires the withdrawal of the antigen in order to treat it. So there's lots of issues that are of critical importance in patient care in this small population. Next up, what about the quality of life component? Brian Amani. I think when we look at the lived experience of people with haemophilia B with inhibitors, it's a small proportion, one to 5% compared to 25 to 30% of those with factor VIII deficiency. It really is an underserved population because they have a tough quality of life. They have a high annual bleed rate, a lot of acute and chronic pain, a lot of joint damage and limited treatment options. The treatment options really are the bypassing agents, which have been on the market for many, many years. Unlike haemophilia A with inhibitors, they do not have the option of emicizumab as a prophylactic therapy. Now, thankfully there are other options in clinical trials at the moment. They offer some hope for better treatment options in the coming years for people with haemophilia B with inhibitors. But I would say, if you look at haemophilia A and B with and without inhibitors, there's no doubt that those with haemophilia B with inhibitors have the worst quality of life because of the smaller number of treatment options at the moment. These patients are on historical treatment of on-demand therapy and bypassing agents 
just don't work as well or reliably as do replacing the coagulation factor. So you've got a patient who is on an old term treatment regimen of on demand who doesn't even respond as well and requires a higher infusion burden, suffers more burdens in terms of bleed control, time, musculoskeletal concerns, limitations in activities. It's not good. We'll circle back to factor IX inhibitors when we consider the novel and emerging treatment approaches for haemophilia B towards the end. In the meantime, let's turn our attention to the clinical nature of factor IX and impact on health outcomes right after this short ad break. Globally, approximately 75% of people living with haemophilia have limited or no access to treatment. Sanofi is committed to helping address this public health crisis. In 2020, Sanofi, together with Sobi, extended their support for the WFH Humanitarian Aid Program, fulfilling their 2014 pledge to donate up to 1 billion IUs of Factor for humanitarian use over a 10-year period. This is the single largest donation of hemophilia factor therapy and has already provided treatment for more than 17,300 people in 43 countries an important first step to providing a sustainable supply of therapy to those in need. To learn more about Sanofi's global commitment to the hemophilia community, visit sanofihemophilia.com. Welcome back. Before we get down to the clinical features of Factor IX, it's worth noting that hemophilia B is less common than hemophilia A. A recent international study that used patient registry data from Australia, Canada, France, Italy, New Zealand and the United Kingdom estimated the global prevalence of haemophilia A across all severities to be 17.1 per 100,000 males in the population, while the prevalence of haemophilia B was 3.8 males per 100,000. Thus, Factor IX deficiency affects 18% of all people living with haemophilia. The two haemophilias have been largely considered clinically indistinguishable from one another, with little to no differences in severity and outcomes. They're each characterised by immediate or delayed haemorrhage into both deep and mucocutaneous tissues, predominantly affecting the musculoskeletal system. However, the practical implication of Factor IX's comparatively lower frequency is that there may be certain biology and clinical manifestations of haemophilia B that might not be well captured in combined studies of Factor VIII and IX. For the same reason, research that is specifically targeted to Factor IX can be more challenging, sometimes hampering the ability to study the unique nature of as well as the disorder-specific treatment approaches to haemophilia B. One of the most hotly debated topics is the relative severity of the haemophilia A and B bleeding phenotypes, or tendency to bleed, although no evidence-based consensus has ever been reached. Endogenous factor levels have traditionally been used to categorise the severity of both disorders, with the aforementioned severe haemophilia considered as circulating levels of factor less than 1% normal, where the risk of bleeding is highest, moderate levels between 1 and 5%, while requiring a more substantial injury if levels are mild above 5%. Still, there is variability in bleeding tendency, 
even among people living with severe haemophilia. Plus, several recent studies have been highlighting the similarities and differences between the two factor deficiencies. Brian Amani. There's been an ongoing debate as to whether haemophilia B is less clinically severe than haemophilia A. The fact is there is no substantial evidence to show that haemophilia B is less clinically severe, although at the recent WH Annual Congress... That's the World Federation of Haemophilia's yearly meeting, which took place as a hybrid event in May of this year in Montreal, Canada. There was some data showing that moderate haemophilia B might be somewhat less severe than moderate haemophilia A, that you have later onset and a lower bleeding rate in moderate haemophilia B. But in terms of severe haemophilia B, I think the clinical pathway is very similar to severe haemophilia A. We see data from the CHESS-2 study, from the B-natural studies, from the B-hero studies, including others, showing a substantial and persistent real-world burden of disease in haemophilia B. So I think you've got the same problems with the mobility problems, damage to joint health, impairment of activities of daily living, acute and chronic pain, potential anxiety and depression, all of the same unmet need that you see in haemophilia A is present in haemophilia B. One of the research programmes that Brian just referred to was the B Natural Study. This was a large, multi-centre, multinational, prospective observational study of 224 people living with haemophilia B, spanning all severities, a big number considering the rarity of factor IX, enrolled between 2016 and 2018 from 24 HTCs in North America, Europe and Asia. Two of the authors who had conceptualised and designed the B Natural study were Dr Shapiro and Professor Astermark. They both weigh in on the discussion. The first question you asked is, is hemophilia B less severe than hemophilia A? There are conflicting data, and I think some of it depends on your perspective. If you're looking at an annualized bleed rate for patients with severe factor IX versus severe factor VIII, there are some studies that show that it's slightly lower. The same can be true for moderate and mild. Then I think the question is, though, patients with factor IX deficiency do bleed the same way that factor VIII deficient patients do. They don't bleed differently as compared to some other rare bleeding disorders, for example, factor thirteen deficiency. And because they have the same musculoskeletal issues and the same other issues in terms of bleeding with injury, bleeding in other deep tissues, the sequelae or the morbidity that they experience in the long term is the same. So when you're looking at a patient with severe factor IX deficiency and you say, well, you're not as severe, you probably don't need Profi. I don't think that's true. One bleed in a joint can damage a joint for life. And that's what you're subjecting that patient to by making that decision based upon just an ABR. The number of bleeds that happen over a given year for any reason abbreviated as ABR. I think the whole issue of is it less severe is an interesting scientific question, but from a clinical perspective, you have to look at long-term outcomes and health-related quality of life, what the patient reports. I couldn't have said it better myself. Is B different from A? I fully agree. If you read studies, you will have conflicting results. Just going to our own quite recently published study from the Nordic area, where we try to have some 
matched controls hemophilia A. Professor Astermark is referring to the B. Nord study that enrolled 79 males living with severe haemophilia B from six HTCs in Denmark, Finland, Norway and Sweden. Biological females were included, but none fulfilled the inclusion criteria. Not a perfect study, but still, there was some kind of indication maybe that you could consider B as maybe a little bit less harmful to the joint than the A, as has been seen in other studies as well. However, it doesn't mean that their quality of life actually is better if you try to correlate that. I think that the term we have here, severity, is a tricky one. We all know that this about measuring factor levels, going down to the area around 1% is extremely difficult. That's why we have studies where they define severe patients as up to 2% and it's easier to enroll patients. But it's a completely different story in my view, both clinically from a phenotype bleeding point of view and an immunological point of view, whether you do have small amounts of the protein still. Not least for factor nine, I think that this might be something to consider. So if I have a really severe patient with no protein A and B, I don't think there are any difference between these two. I would definitely consider them as having the same phenotypic disease. What maybe could be a difference might be that patients having hemophilia B more frequently have some kind of genetic escape mechanism in the cell nucleus. There might be some mistranslating from the DNA, so you can get small amounts of protein maybe out from the cell, even though the patient carry a specific mutation which should not produce any functional protein. I think that might be a difference between A and B, that when we go down and we discuss severe B, there are mutations that cause that disease that somehow not necessarily will be completely zero in protein action. The problem is we can't measure it. This is an area for further research, I think, but that could be one explanation. Dr. Shapiro. In our state, we have a disproportionate number compared to what's expected of patients with factor nine deficiency. Many of them come from the plain community, which is also known as the Amish or Mennonite communities because there was a founder mutation and because they have more children, there is a larger number of patients within the state who have factor nine deficiency. A founder mutation is the original one in a population through which it was subsequently propagated. So in this case, a factor nine mutation that originated in the Amish population spread throughout that population, exacerbated by the lack of marriage outside the community, and as Dr. Shapiro says, by the procreation of many offspring. I'll never forget when I first moved to this state, I met an Amish gentleman who has severe factor nine deficiency. He told me when he was young, he had a knee bleed and he was in a recliner for six months, six months. And his knee, I mean, when he grew up, it had to be replaced. Now, I think actually his level may be 1% or one and a half. So technically, according to American standards, depends on what standards you use for the level for defining severity. He may be moderate, but it's not a moderate impact in terms of his long-term outcome. The Amish are an interesting population to focus on here for a moment. From their beginnings in Europe, through their settlement in North America in the 18th century, 
Today's Amish live in rural areas of the US in a band of over 30 states stretching westward from Vermont and Maine through the most populous states of Pennsylvania, Ohio and Indiana where Dr Shapiro resides and reaching as far as Montana. Kathleen Schnur is a clinical social worker at the Haemophilia Centre of Western Pennsylvania and vice chair of the National Haemophilia Foundation's Social Work Working Group. She was the 2020 recipient of the Foundation's Social Work Excellence Fellowship. In my area in Western Pennsylvania, we have a large Amish population that is affected by hemophilia B. We have a lot of men who are affected and these are large families. If you have a dad and a lot of them have seven to 10 kids, you're having all of these carriers, then those daughters go off and get married, and then we have a whole bunch of other children who have the potential to be affected as well. We have quite a few women who are low levels that require treatment. The unique thing about our Amish communities is traditionally Amish individuals believe that sickness and whatnot is an act of God, so they typically don't really seek much medical intervention. It doesn't mean that they're opposed to it, but it's definitely not the norm for them. We have a great working relationship with them. We provide Amish outreaches, and most of them don't use health insurance, so they definitely lean in on a lot of the programs that are available. Most of their bleeds tend to be more traumatic. One of my kiddos was wrestling with a goat and had a bit of a bleed, so it's some interesting stories that you get. Most of their vocations, they work as loggers, building furniture, a lot of high-risk activities, actually. (laughs) Many of them don't use electricity, so there's generally a phone with in the community and sometimes they have to walk a mile to get to that phone to give us a call. We have a pretty standard approach out of our clinic that if an Amish individual calls, we encourage them to identify themselves as Amish so that a nurse can get to the phone very quickly because we know that it is an opportunity to talk and it's not like we can give them a call back. We have to also keep in mind with them is having an understanding of their culture. They are outreaching us. We need to meet them where they are. We need to be appreciative that they are seeking care and not try to convince them to do this or that. A lot of them live hour and a half to three hours from the clinic. When we go to them, it's definitely much more doable. But if they need to come to us, they have to get a driver because they don't drive. It is definitely huge barriers for this community to get treatment. So we really have to maximize every opportunity and engaging and educating them, delivering the information in a way that makes sense to them and they can fit into their lifestyle. but also being very clear about the implications and consequences of not treating. To truly understand Amish health culture and their interactions with the healthcare system requires more than a rudimentary grasp than is possible within this episode and series. But we do hope to return to the Amish as part of one of Bloodstream Media's outputs in the near future. Returning to the general haemophilia population with respect to treatment, The bleeding phenotypes of haemophilia A and B are considered to be comparably severe enough in the presence of undetectable factor levels 
to warrant the initiation of prophylactic clotting factor administration in high and some middle-income countries. Episodes 3 and 4 of the Global Haemophilia Report highlighted the comparatively fewer observational and clinical trial data supporting the optimization of prophylaxis regimens and the substantiation of the musculoskeletal and health-related quality of life benefit of factor prophylaxis in Haemophilia B. Consequently, much of standard of care to treat factor 9, including prophylaxis, has traditionally been extrapolated from the knowledge gained from the study of factor 8. Professor Astermark. Just want to add another thing that I think could also add to this around severe phenotype and treatment in patients. If you have a protein factor 9 that goes outside the vessels, which will not happen in A, that might also have an impact on the treatment we're giving them and how that works, actually. The reservoir of factor 9 that potentially could be outside the vessels, if you have a patient with a lot of protein himself that's occupying the reservoir outside vessels, that will compete with the product you're giving to a patient with severe hemophilia B, which will not happen in A. So that might be another thing that completely is a different story for A and B, that is how we treat them, the effect of, for example, prophylaxis in these patients. Going over your head as well, luckily for us, Dr. Donna D. McKillay, Senior Advisor to the Global Haemophilia Report, was on hand to explain. There are two things that impact treatment and make them think about treatment in a very different way. That is that a lot of individuals who have hemophilia B actually have some circulating protein. That protein may not work as well as normal protein, but it can still go to places outside the circulation, which factor nine does, and ultimately interfere potentially with factor nine treatment in that these protein molecules can compete with the normal factor nine wherever the protein goes and has its coagulation effect. So the first is this factor nine protein that can still be expressed in individuals with so-called severe hemophilia B. And the second is that factor nine actually circulates outside of the vascular system into what we call the extravascular space. So the biochemistry and the physiology of factor nine significantly impacts how we treat hemophilia B differently than how we treat hemophilia A. Now that's how you explain science to a mixability audience. Pure class and fascinating in equal measure. Back over to Professor Astermark and Dr. Shapiro. It might be they should dose a hemophilia B patient different if we know that they have a lot of endogenous protein which can be outside the vessels. That's an interesting question. Where does factor nine go? <laughs> That's an important issue. Factor nine is, among other tissues, made in the liver, in hepatocytes. Factor eight is made in the endothelium. This will be more relevant when we explore gene therapy for haemophilia B. Factor 8 and 9 are also different in terms of the volume of distribution of the product. So factor 8 binds to von Willebrand factor, which is a large multimeric protein present in the plasma. It protects factor 8 from degradation. Factor 9 distributes far more widely. The volume of distribution is probably at least twice that of factor eight. Then the question Jan brought up is where does it go? 
it goes in many people's minds into the extravascular space. Maybe it's bound to the endothelium, which can create an equilibrium between the plasma concentration and what is bound. It's hard to know. Yeah, and bound also to collagen in the extravascular. I think that's mm -hmm. a key component that binds factor nine. And since factor eight are a bigger molecule that will not go extravascular, that will be completely different from factor nine, which definitely will go extravascular and bind to the collagen. That is clear. What we do not understand still is what will that actually mean? But I think that in patients with hemophilia B, where they have a protein, not functional one, due to mutation, that protein will also be outside the vessel, and that will compete with an infused factor IX product, which tries to somehow compete with the binding there. Depending on the binding to these collagen molecules, it will, of course, have an impact on the reservoir and how efficient we will be able to prevent bleeds and treat bleeds in that patient. Did you know that nearly 80% of bleeds in hemophilia occur in the joints? Joint bleeds are the most common type of bleed and can cause lasting damage as well as increase the risk of recurrent bleeds. Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers for patients, including providing resources and education to support joint health. Visit hemejointhealth.com to see how routine objective assessment might benefit patients' joint health for the long term. Again, that's heme, as in H-E-M, jointhealth.com. This site is intended for U.S. healthcare professionals. From her childhood, the Sarina had heard hemophilia spoken of as a dreadful and mysterious thing against which men were powerless. After all, she knew that an uncle, one of her brothers, and two of her nephews had died of it. Now, her only son, the Sarvich Alexei, the child she loved more than anything else on earth, was affected. As the months passed, numerous doctors, surgeons, and specialists were consulted, but every kind of treatment was tried in vain. When the mother realized that no human aid could save the prince, and considering her profound reverence for the Orthodox Christian faith, naturally her last hope was in God. Yet, even with the most fervent prayers, the cruel, ruthless attacks followed hard on each other's heels, as Pierre Gilliard described it, alluding to Alexei's bleeding episodes. The last hope of a divine revelation failed. The weight of agony and despair were overwhelming. Alexandra felt utter hopelessness and helplessness. Enter Grigory Rasputin. Rasputin, a Siberian-born music or peasant, arrived in the former Russian capital, St. Petersburg, in 1904 with a prophet-like reputation. Fashioning a black, scruffily overgrown beard, dark, long and poorly combed hair, a baggy tunic with a copper cross pendant hanging from his neck and emitting a pungent musky smell. Many people from his village believed that Rasputin possessed supernatural powers and the ability to perform miracles. It was a year later that the imperial couple would become acquainted with him. Rasputin captured the imagination of the emotionally vulnerable Alexandra, who convinced herself that Rasputin was a man of God 
and that he could save her son. Believe in the power of my prayers, said Rasputin. Believe in my help and your son will live. Rasputin's moral hold over the Tsarina led to the Mad Monk, as he would eventually be known, becoming a familiar sight at the royal's summer residence and eventually all the way up to the Tsar's court alongside high-ranking officials and advisors. Proclaiming himself as a healer, Rasputin was purportedly able to calm and even put to sleep an often hysterical Alexei during a bleed event, while also arresting the flow of blood from the boy's wounds. The Tsar's younger sister, the Grand Duchess Olga, was a witness to one of Rasputin's alleged treatments. She described the poor Alexei lying in pain with dark patches under his eyes, his small body all distorted, a leg terribly swollen. The doctors were just useless, more frightened than any of us. Rasputin had been summoned from St. Petersburg to attend to Alexei that night. The next morning, Olga could not believe her eyes. The little boy was not just alive, but well. He was sitting up in bed, the fever gone, his eyes clear and bright, not a sign of any swelling in the leg. She later learned from Alexandra that Rasputin had not even touched the child, but merely stood at the foot of the bed and prayed. Make of that what you will. Each of Rasputin's appearances seemed to produce an improvement in Alexei's woes, although how he was able to help the boy is medically uncertain. Some believe it was a sheer coincidence. As part of his religious healing rituals, the self-proclaimed holy man asked doctors to stop administering whatever they were giving the boy, which turned out to be aspirin, then widely used to relieve pain, but unknown as an anti-clotting agent until the 1950s. Nonetheless, such interventions increased Rasputin's prestige and confirmed confidence in his spiritual prowess. He once allegedly told the Tsarina, Remember that I need neither the Emperor nor yourself. If I am not there to protect you, you will lose your son and your crown within six months. Nicholas and Alexandra's desire to protect the autocracy, the dynasty, and their beloved Alexei fueled one of their many poor political choices of the time, the decision as a family to retreat from court and public life. As a result, they would rarely meet their subjects. Nobody outside the immediate family knew of Alexei's haemophilia. They only knew that the libertine Rasputin was invited to the royal palaces at all hours of the day and night. His domestic, religious and increasing political influence antagonised the governing classes, who the Tsar depended on for their loyalty. This is well illustrated by an entry in the diary of General Bogdanovich. I took up my pen feeling crushed and wretched. I have never known a more disgraceful time. It is not the Tsar, but the upstart Rasputin who governs Russia. And he states openly that the Tsar needs him even more than the Tsarina. The Tsar has lost all respect. And the Tsarina declares that it is only thanks to Rasputin's prayers that the Tsar and their son are alive and well. And this is the 20th century. The fate of the Romanov Empire was in grave danger. Hi, listeners. 
It's Patrick again. I'm reminding you here to stay tuned for the conclusion of our two-part episode on hemophilia B. That episode will be coming your way later this month, so make sure you're subscribed to the Global Hemophilia Report so that you can listen as soon as it's released. Until then. That's a wrap for Episode 8 of the Global Hemophilia Report. Thank you for joining us on our historical and evidence-based journey through the last Russian imperial family and the research and care for people living with Haemophilia B. We would like to say a big thank you to this episode's brilliant guests in order of appearance. Brian Amani, Professor Jan Ustermark, Dr Amy Shapiro, Kathleen Schnur and Dr Bethany Samuelson-Banner. Also, particular recognition goes to Professor Astermark and Dr. Shapiro for being co-advisors to this episode. Thank you to the Global Haemophilia Report's senior advisor, Dr. Donna DiMichele, who we also heard in this episode, and to our featured advertiser, Sanofi. For a list of links to the reference research, organisations and other aspects to do with Haemophilia B, please take a look at the programme notes for this episode in your podcast player, or visit this episode's webpage on bloodstreammedia.com. To be notified when the next episode drops, be sure to subscribe to the Global Haemophilia Report podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And make sure to share this episode with friends or colleagues in the field. You'll also find the Global Haemophilia Report's social media pages on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you to our producer, Keith Corniluck, graphic designer, Christina Newhard, Creative Director Joshua Sterling Bragg and Executive Producers Amy Board, Rob Bradford and Ryan Geelan. My name is Lawrence Willard and you've been listening to the Global Haemophilia Report. Until next time. Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global haemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is breaking barriers and supporting the community at sanofihemophilia.com.